0: turn to the book of 2nd Timothy on this significant Sunday as we commission Pastor Matt Reynolds to Midlothian Bible Church and we want to welcome uh, the delegates that have come here from that church here. You're in hostile territory but we're glad that you're here. We'll uh, try to be nice. We've been talking a lot about loving one another and rejoicing with rejoice and weeping with those who weep. So anyway we're glad to have you here. You know there is a question is that what exactly is a pastor to do, okay? And you, you might wonder that, and I don't think this, this is just in central Texas here, but every once in a while, you know, people say like, hey, man, you got it easy. You're a pastor. You only work one day a week, you know? And I, and I feel like I've got to quickly correct them and take a stand here, and I say, no, wait a second. Let me clarify something. I only work actually a half day a week. I work on Sunday, Sunday morning only, okay? And so you make that real clear that you are, no, you need to know something. Actually, what you see taking place on a Sunday morning, that is actually just one portion. It's a significant portion. It's the most public portion of a pastor's ministry, but there is far more to it than what you see. Uh, In fact, in many respects, it's a 24-7 job. Uh, When I consider my time working in the insurance industry and then, the hours and the demands of being a pastor. Really, there was, there's not a lot of comparison. It's, it is extremely difficult, and there's a lot of demands. And I want you to understand something. I believe every Christian is actually called into the ministry, okay? If you're a Christian, God has his call on your life. You serve him, and you're gifted by him in your vocation, with your family, and his church, And in the community, you have a role to fulfill. I would recommend that you do your ministry, your job, to the glory of God, to the best of your abilities, dependent upon His Spirit. But you need to understand that pastors, and specifically teaching pastors, have a unique role in the body of Christ. In fact, they have a charge to keep. This isn't a human commission. It's not set up by some sort of denomination. It's not given by a certain church or a board. It's actually a divine commission that is spelled out in God's word of specifically what God wants his men who serve him as teaching pastors to do. And at the heart of this charge is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul, the apostle wrote these words at the end of his life. Shortly after he pens these words, he does make the ultimate sacrifice and makes his entrance into heaven. He puts down what is absolutely most important and most important for what Timothy is to know and specifically he is to do. It was his charge. It's our charge. It is a charge to keep. So, Matt, this morning I'm presenting to you this charge given to us by God through the inspiration of the Spirit through the Apostle Paul. This charge to keep. So, what is a pastor to do? Well, They are to preach the word. If you ever want to see a loaded charge, perhaps the strongest possible charge ever uttered in the Bible, you only have to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4 to see it. Look at verse 1. He says, I solemnly charge, or could be translated command you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Verse one is to direct your full attention. I want you to understand this. This is what you're to do in the presence of God, the Almighty God, and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge, He's going to judge the living and the dead. Do you know that? Every single person will one day appear before him. He's the absolute supreme judge. On that basis, he says, he's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, speaking of his second coming, and his kingdom, a kingdom that you see in Revelation chapter 20 that is a millennial, thousand-year reign, and an eternal kingdom that follows. On the basis of all of this, I mean, you should have your absolute, complete attention at this point, I want you to do this. Preach the word. Preach, Caruso, it has the idea of heralding or to proclaim publicly. And what a herald would do, although we're not as common with heralds, uh, we sing a song about hark the herald, angel sings, but help me understand what that means. It was someone who was a proclaimer. They were an imperial messenger. And an emperor could send out these proclaimers, these heralds. They'd go into the various communities and they had an announcement to make. They weren't ambassadors. They didn't do negotiations like, well, you know, let's see if you and the king can kind of meet in the middle here. They, they didn't do that. They had a job. They were to stand up, speak clearly, and to speak whatever the king or the emperor wanted them to say. That is all they were supposed to do, and that is specifically what they needed to do. So if it was a public announcement, there were new laws that were going to be enacted, or there are government policies or actions that are going to be taking place, or we're going to war on some other country or empire, the heralds would go out, And their job was to proclaim the message. The message that we are to proclaim is the message given to us by God. We are to preach the word. All of the word. Not just your favorite parts. It is the entire written word. Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures. The New Testament. God has given his message in this book. And you, as a pastor, have a charge to keep. And that is to preach the word. You don't preach your favorite topics. Uh, you don't give it, like just a real running commentary. Um, this isn't Bible as literature, okay? This isn't uh, you giving the latest news, private opinion, your personal take on things, your personal experience. It is not preaching isn't about you setting the political agenda in your church. It's not even you expanding upon your theological persuasion or orientation. God says, I want you to do this. I want you to preach the word, my word. And if you remember in context, it is God's word that has power. Chapter three, verse 15, it is the word of God that literally can bring salvation because it points to Christ. It shows you your need and the absolute supremacy and wonders of the grace of Christ. Furthermore, look what he says in verse 16 and 17. This word, he says, all scripture is what? inspired, literally God breathed. It is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God wants to see his people come to the fullness of maturity. Did you know that? That is his goal. How does he do that? He does it as God's people interact and mature and develop through the intake of God's word. And well, pastor, what are you supposed to be presenting? You preach the word. You see, it's the word that reveals the gospel. It's the word that reveals the reality of Christ, the one who's promised, predicted, pictured, prophesied in the Old Testament, fully revealed in the gospels, the first four books, the New Testament, and completely expanded upon who he is and all he is accomplishing his reign and his realm, which is the rest of the New Testament, God says, I want you to preach the word. You see, it's the word that reveals that Christ actually dwells in our hearts by faith. And can I say something? You can't really preach the word unless you believe that the Bible is God's word. If you're kind of checking out like, hmm, I'm not sure. Inerrancy, that it's uh, without error, infallible, completely trustworthy, not sure about that. If you don't believe what God has declared and revealed about his word, you can't preach it. You're going to have to find something else to entertain people. But God's not in the entertainment business, is he? He's into the business of seeing people truly come to know Christ and grow deep and mature in him. And there's only one way that happens. It's through the preaching of the word. And that is why he tells pastors, specifically teaching pastors, you know what you need to do? Whoever speaks is to do so as the one who is speaking the utterances of God. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Remember that? That means you've got to prepare well. You've got to do the hard work. It's the hidden cost. Nobody really sees how much effort the pastor has to put into putting together a mass- message. You might think like, yeah, he just kind of rolls out of bed, he shows up, just kind of flows through. It must be something they do to him at seminary, you know, beat them with a stick or something like that, and then they fill them with all this information and they just got Greek flowing out of them. They remember everything they learned in Hebrew class. They pick up things from church culture and the world and they know all about church history and it just just kind of flows out of them. I don't know how it happens, but that's really cool. Uh Uh-uh. There is a hidden cost. Anything done well takes time. You and I both know that. Every message that you engage in when you come to a church that's taking at least about 15, 20 hours on a minimum to proclaim the word, to do the digging and the depth work that, that is needed. But you not only are preparing well, but then you're looking to see, what, what is, how do we respond to this truth? When you, when you come to preaching, you don't like, man, I need a message, man. Sunday's coming. I got to come up with something. Oh, cool. I could make the Bible. I could say this. That'd be cool. I got a verse to go with that. Huh? That's That's not how it works. You come to the Bible and you figure out what God has revealed. This book is your message. You don't make up the message. You are what? A herald. You just proclaim what God has already given in the Word. So you preach the Word and you do the hard work. And then what happens is once you understand it and, how, and you see how we respond to it under the power of the Holy Spirit, then you proclaim the Word from conviction, with compassion with clarity, and you do so under the, under the moving of the Spirit of God and you present the truth to the people. That's what we do, and that is your role. And he says, verse 2, not only do you preach the word, but you're to be ready, look at this, in season and out of season. That word be ready was used of a soldier who was either on guard or was actually in a military campaign and paying attention Okay, if you're on guard, you're like, I just got a nice little government job. Let's just take a nap here. I hope someone will wake me up when my shift is over. That's not what the guard did. You fall asleep, you're dead. Okay, or your city is ransacked. You're paying attention. That's your job. And so it is with the pastor. You need to be ready. And notice what he says. You need to be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular and it's easy and it's convenient, and when it's not, you got to be ready at all times. It's, it's interesting. You're to be ready in season and you're going to be ready in every situation. That means like in your personal discipleship ministry, what exactly are you doing? It's more than just developing good friendships. It is helping people understand what the word is saying and to grow deep in your relationship with Christ. In your small group settings, you're helping people understand the word. In large group settings, you got one message It's the message of this book. It's the message of Christ. You are to preach the word. And when he says in season and out of season, it's using analogy from an agriculture. So the farmer, like when it's in season, when the crops are there, you know, the amber waves of grain, right? You got all the apples. It is in season. It's time to harvest. Awesome. Really exciting. Probably going to make a lot of money, right? You're pretty excited about that. Harvest time. But you need to preach the word not only when it seems like it's harvest time and the fruit's right there, You gotta preach it when it's not. You know, a farmer, they gotta do a lot of work when the when it isn't in season. It's out of season. They're sharpening the blades on their plows, they're tilling the soil, they're pulling the weeds, they're picking rocks. Did you guys ever do that? I did that as a kid, picking rocks out of a field. Going to my grandparents' farm, like, how much fun could this be? But you do that, why? Because you can't afford to have a rock go through the combine. You've got a lot of work, and you don't even see the harvest. All you see is rocks and some dirt, right? Well, that's what you need to do, though. You've got to preach the word, whether it's popular or it's not. It's interesting, when you look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his message, and when he preaches the message in Acts chapter 2, 2,000 people come to Christ, How cool was that, man? Every pool in Jerusalem was filled with all these people that are proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah and he's their Lord and they're baptizing him everywhere. Awesome. Peter's like, man, I like this pastor business. I like what God does. It's interesting. Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives it a shot and he proclaims his message. And you know what happened, didn't you? Well, he got pelted with 2,000 rocks and they killed him. and He was the first martyr. You preach the Word. You preach it in season and out of season, whether people are responding to it like you'd like to or whether they are not. And it is God's Word that does the work. It's, It's God's Word that shapes a person's comprehension of the way the world really is, as revealed to us in His Word. It shapes our convictions, our beliefs, our attitudes, our values. It shapes our behavior. It is, it is like this. He says, notice what the text says. You preach the word in season and out of season. You reprove, which has the idea of correcting behavior and false doctrine. You rebuke, which actually starts addressing a person's motives. And notice exhort. It's from the Greek word parakaleo, paraklete. It has the idea of coming alongside and encouraging. It's used to the Holy Spirit. You don't beat the sheep. You know, man, you got to preach to them mad, right? They got to know you're serious no 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 no! you love the people and you speak the truth in love and you want to see them grow and flourish and be everything that god intended them to be that is why we preach the word and we do so in season and out of season it is very much kind of like the vision of fellowship bible church the only way a person is really going to come to the fullness of maturity is as they're growing deep and they're sinking deep roots in the riches of Christ and his word and the glories of forgiveness and grace and his mercy in your life and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. And as a person's growing deep, they're branching out and reaching out and flourishing and bearing fruit, fruit that reproduces and fruit that remains. That is the work you're after. It's kind of like you are in an orchard And you got like little seeds that become saplings and saplings are growing. And in a church, you have got people of all sorts of different levels of maturity. We got the brand new believers. We got some unbelievers. And we got all people of all different stages of growth and development. But you give yourself to it. And like the text says, it's going to take great patience and instruction. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a long period of time. That is what you're to do. You are to preach the word. Imagine if you were a, some of you don't have to imagine. In fact, I had to do this this week. Your car didn't work, right? So what do you do? After you assess that you can't fix it, you go find someone that can. So you go to a mechanic, right? Some of our prized possessions in our community are our mechanics, right? And so we take our vehicles to the mechanic. Man, something's wrong. It's making weird sounds. I'm pretty sure smoke shouldn't be coming out of the front end of my car like this. I'm supposed to come out of the back end. Help me. All right, you leave it there, right? You come back and like, oh man, You're an automotive genius. Your car is awesome. It is great. You're good to go. Really? Okay. You hop in there and you get yourself involved in a real bad accident. That's because you don't have any oil, no transmission fluid. The brake fluid is gone and all the lug nuts are missing from your wheels. And you get into this accident and by the time when you get done with your accident and saying nice things to the police officer and all those sort of things, you're going to make an appearance back at your automotive shop. How is that going to go? You're going to walk in there and you're going to be slightly unhappy, right? And you say, Hey, what's the deal, man? I thought you told me my car is awesome. Everything's great. Obviously, it's not. The mechanic goes, Ugh. Well, you know what? Listen, I want, I want you to feel good about yourself. And I, I want people to like me. I want when people come to my shop, I want them to know they're cared for and loved and accepted just the way they are. I don't want to tell them things about that are wrong with the car. I don't, I don't really like to do it, it doesn't work well. Would that work for you? Would you keep going to that mechanic? No. How about your doctor? You go to your doctor because you know you're, something's not right. Is this the aging thing? But I'm having some aches and pains, and things are not quite like they should be. I'm not feeling so good. So you go and visit your doctor, and you explain these things, and he's checking you out, or she's checking you out. I'm like, oh And they tell you this: you've got the body of an Olympian, and you're like, really, man. <laughs> whoa, man, not bad for not trying, you know, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Like, maybe all this is just, you know, because I'm just so strong, and that's just my muscles keeping developing as I'm just kind of watching TV or something. Like, well, I'm feeling pretty good. And, you know, and so you're feeling really good. The uh, the doctor says, you got a clean bill of health, man. Live life to its fullest. Well, you try to go, you're at your meeting, you have to go up a set of stairs, and your heart gives out on you, and you're all passed out, and next thing you know, they wheel you into an emergency room, and you find out that you're about one plate of brisket from facing eternity your arteries are clogged you're in terrible shape you got all sorts of problems with you when you do visit your little doctor friend what do you are you, how's that going to go you're like hey what's up with this you told me that everything was fine and i'm really in great shape obviously that is not the case you didn't tell me the truth and the doctor's oh well you know what i want people to be happy here and i want them to like me and I find that it's kind of bad for business if I tell them, like, you get got all these issues, you need to make these changes. So you know what? I just tell them what they want to hear. That will never work. You know why it doesn't work? Because when it comes to things that are important, we want the truth. That comes with our cars and our trucks and our health and our bodies. And it is especially true for our souls, Right? We want someone to tell us the truth. In fact, you know someone loves you when they will speak the truth and they do so in love. Listen, friends, if I didn't love you, I'd keep you entertained, and I'd just tell you funny stories and jokes. I would never get to the Word because the Word brings about conviction. It's difficult, and you know, it's hard sometimes to hear, and it's hard to even understand. And yet, You cannot grow and mature apart from it. You know what the whole purpose, you know what God is trying to do, don't you? He is seeking to bring people to a place where they're truly trusting in Christ, really knowing him, not knowing about him, moving past the little flannel graph thing, truly knowing Christ personally and believing in his finished work on the cross, trusting in the gospel, and then from this life in Christ, abiding him and maturing and growing deep and mature, that's what God intends for all of his people, and that cannot happen apart from the word. You remember what Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4? Man does not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Did you want to grow? It can't happen apart from the word. In fact, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect of salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. You can't grow apart from this book. Did you know that? And do you believe it? Well, god makes it crystal clear and that's why he says my pastors i want you to do this one thing i want you to preach the word and here's something else this is the part that's tough you can prepare well you can dig deep you can preach your heart out but unless the spirit of god moves in the hearts of people it almost seems like a vain activity Unless God moves the heart and takes you from a heart of stone to give you a heart of flesh that starts beating for him. Unless God brings about conviction and awakens people from their stupor to actually believe and to shape convictions and to take steps of growth and belief and faith and dependence upon God. Unless God does the work, we labor in vain. God's got to be the one who's building the house. And so friends, what happens is this. Transformation comes through God's revelation. That is why Paul says, Timothy, I want you to make sure you do this one thing. I want you to preach the word. Now here, boy, great, huh? We can do that. Just one problem: people will tire of sound doctrine. In fact, Christians will even look at verse three. If there was ever a verse that seems to kind of epitomize the Christian culture, especially in America, in other parts of the world, especially where the persecuted church is, uh, not so much. But this, this could be America. Verse 3, for the time will come, will they'll not endure sound doctrine? But wanting to have their ears tickled, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. People are going to not endure, not tolerate sound. It's where we get the word hygienic, healthy teaching. They're just going to come to a place like, we don't really want that sort of stuff. In fact, what they're going to want is spirituality on their own terms they're going to find folks that are accommodating their desires. No longer do they want to be like, "God, I want you to shape and change my life and mold me to the image of Christ and do so through your word." No, 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 no. What we want to do is we want to take God and his word and make that fit in with our lifestyle, right? God says, "I don't want it that way," and yet that's exactly what will happen. What's going to happen is people are going, pastors are going to start to like, "What does the wind of culture want me to say?" ooh, this is in vogue, this is popular. In fact, it, it's so predictable. We're, pastors oftentimes are trying to figure out what we should do next quarter. Who's got the latest fad? And we're going through them and it's about four a year and are always looking for what's the next hot thing to do? What's the killer topic, man? Ooh, that is cool. And what's happening is we're moving away from what God has called us to do. You see, if I were to invite you to a steak dinner, what do you think the focus main thing of the dinner is to be? You know what I guess? It's the steak, right? It's kind of like, you know, when we're going up to Colorado, our Texas state park, and we make a stop in Amarillo, right? And we go to that famous little restaurant there, the big Texan steak ranch. And you know, it's, you got a 72-ounce steak. If you can eat that in an hour, guess what? Your meal's free. And they got some other things on there. They got some you know, little side salad, and they got that little parsley garnishing. Do you have to eat that, by the way, for those of you who have done that? do you have to eat it you you don't okay good okay i wasn't sure that's why i've never done it okay but this is what happens you see the the steak is like the bible that is the main feast the other think that's nice it's not unimportant but what's really important is the meat the bible is the steak but what's happening is it's getting relegated to the side salad or even the little parsley leaf or you might just gotta sprinkle a bible verse or here or there that's not preaching the word you give people the full meal deal you give them the word is the bible shaping the lives of your people is god bringing transformation through revelation because friends if you're a pastor that is what we are to do as simple and as profound as that and yet what happens now is if you don't like something You just get rid of it. If it's too hard to understand, this this isn't going to work. Oh man, Romans 9, 10, 11. That's going to create lots of problems in a guy's church. We're going to skip over that. If that is your mindset, you know what happens is people just, they just avoid it. They get rid of it. You just talk about something else. You skip over it. You don't like the idea of sin. Do you know there are churches in America, we call them, they're called churches anyway, and they got pastors, they will not even say the word sin. Why? (laughs) Oh, It's so negative. People don't like it. We got enough negative stuff. Let's not talk about sin. Or you don't like hell? Simple. Just don't talk about it. Don't talk about, just talk about heaven. Never talk about hell. Just assume that everybody's kind of going to heaven. We, got, we have millions of people assuming they're going to heaven. They've never wrestled with the issues of true salvation, sin, hell. You don't like the idea that Jesus Christ is the only way. That doesn't work anymore. Not in today's America that whole, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. How countercultural can you get? Come on. So you know what you do. You just kind of slide into, well, there's many ways to God in relationship to God and to heaven. We have found that Jesus is a really good way, but there are many ways. Is that what we're supposed to do? You don't like the idea of a sovereign God reigning, ruling? He's supreme. You follow him, he sets the track of what we're supposed to be doing. So you just avoid it all together. What happens is God starts, ended up looking like some sort of benevolent Santa Claus. Why? Well, we're not having pastors who preach the word. And as go the leaders, so go the people. And so what's happening is, it's kind of like you go to this all you eat can buffet, all you can eat buffet, and the pastor starts picking out the food that you're going to be eating. And he notices like the people really like the chocolate cake and they like these cream puff things. They like the pudding, broccoli, meat, potatoes. Not not as popular, especially with the younger crowd. They just like the candy and the sweet stuff. I'm just going to keep giving them that because you know what? After all, I want them to like me. I want them to keep coming. And I want them to feel good about themselves, at least in the short term. I want to give them a little sugar high. The reality is we are to preach the word, all of it, all of it. However, he says, and look at verse four, you know what? They're not going to endure sound doctrine. They're going to verse four. They're going to turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. You can be assured if you will not abide in the truth, Satan has a myth for you to link in on. You're going to eat something. Something is feeding your mentality, something is feeding your mindset, something is shaping your convictions, something is getting you through. Very well might be what you're watching on TV or things that you're reading or books that seem to be really influential. But God says, it needs to be my word. And if it won't be, Satan's got a myth for you and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It's kind of like this. It's like Pandora. You guys into Pandora internet radio? It's pretty cool. You know, it's like you, what you do is you kind of pick out what kind of songs you want to listen to. And anytime you find a song that you like, really like you push the thumbs up right and then there are these sophisticated algorithms that oh you like that kind of song that kind of beat you like a lead singer you like a little guitar and the algorithm will give you more songs like that and then if you hear a song like "Mm, i don't really like that or that's that's not my style on the rendition of the song i'm gonna give it the thumbs down as soon as you hit that you will never hear that song again you know why you gave it the thumbs down well pastors we're not in a position just like people do not like this. Thumbs down. I will never speak of that again. We get a charge, and our charge is to preach the word. You see, it is the word that God uses to bring people to the fullness and maturity of Christ, and that's why we are called to preach it. But a pastor is not only to preach the word. There's something else that we are called to do. We are called to live the truth. Look at verse 5. In contrast to what might be going on in the culture, Paul says, verse 5, but you, I want you to be sober in all things. I want you to think clearly. I want you to engage your head. I want you to be rational. I want you to be level-headed. I want you to be sober in all things. I want you to endure hardship, endure difficulty. You need to endure the difficulties that are in your life. You need to endure the difficulties of actually presenting the word week after week one time, two times, three times a week, whatever is called upon you, you must endure whatever hardships come your way. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. You make sure that you're always engaging with people that are far from God so that you keep seeing the reality of Christ. You don't ever get yourself in a little situation where you're just in a Christian bubble, right? And you're insulated from those who are desperately lost. You know, you do the work of an evangelist. Paul says, I want you to live the truth. I want you to fulfill your ministry. You bring it to full measure. You complete it, and you actually this idea is to actually do it wholeheartedly. That you have got a desire. That your heart's in it. You're not just going through the functions of a pastor. That'd be a bad idea. But you're actually doing it from a heart that really desires God and the work that He set before you. You do these things. It's a pastor. You're kind of like the Pony Express, and you're bringing God's letters. And it doesn't matter what the weather is like or who might be shooting at you. You just deliver the goods. You bring the letters. That is what we do. And for Timothy, boy, did he ever need to hear this. I mean, all we have to do is read First and Second Timothy and we see, man, there's, he was discouraged. You got people that are checking out. You got folks that have become disengaged. Folks that like, Church is like, well, maybe a once a month or once every other week or sort of idea. You got folks that will not grow. You've got on your own personal issues, diminishing health, you got stomach troubles, all of this stuff, man. It makes you want to like, I think I'd rather dig ditches, right? And Paul says, You know what? I want you to do something. I want you to preach the word. And you need to know something. All the difficulties and the brokenness and the problems in your life, that will make you a good preacher. You see god doesn't have an exemption policy for pastors and their difficulties i can tell you from first hand experience you have to go through a lot of hard stuff face a lot of difficulties you there's some people feel like that's why they got a pastor take out their bad days and feelings on you know it's difficult you got to go through all sorts of hardships and oftentimes you do it in a fishbowl i mean people watch you people know everything about you everything about your family and your kids it's not like you hide somewhere. You, you face it, and some of your pain is difficult. I mean, think of some pastors that we know. Think of like a guy like Chuck Swindoll. His wife, Cynthia, went through a very serious, deep clinical depression. Or think of guys like Tommy Nelson or Howard Hendricks or John Piper. All of these guys went through serious, deep, and public depressions. You look at all the difficulties you face. You've got wayward children. You've got problems. You've got your own health issues. You might have financial issues. you got, you got a church that's kind of almost in tumult. It'd be really easy to check out. I can tell you from being in the business world and being a pastor, yeah, there were some challenges being in a, in a high kind of quota system, but they actually paled in comparison to all the difficulties you face being a pastor. It's just a very diversified role. You endure hardship. You fulfill your ministry. And you know this, your trials will either make you bitter or make you better. To fulfill the ministry that god has called you to and that is why paul says i want you to fulfill your ministry by the way if you're going to say this is going to be true of verse verse five to be true of you today it has to be an ongoing pattern of your life and paul says in order for this to happen you have to have certain convictions and he gets deeply personal here in verses six through eight it's as if he's just revealing his heart if if you are going to fulfill your ministry, you have to have these convictions. Verse six, you've got to live your life with no reserve. Look what he says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. A drink offering came at the end of a grain offering or a burnt offering. They would literally pour wine out onto the altar, and it was a symbol of love and total dedication to the living God. What a beautiful picture. Paul says that's me that's my life i am poured out whatever it might be i'm poured out fully to the glory of god because i love him by the way you and i we're pouring our life into something or someone every one of us is pouring out but for the christian to develop a christ-centered mentality to pour your life out to the living god paul says you live your life with no reserve you're not holding back and he knows that his departure is about to come if you were a roman citizen If you were were to face execution, you had the privilege of being executed by the sword where they decapitate you. Of course, if you were not a Roman citizen, well, then you were Colosseum fodder or their most common way is they just crucify you. They keep you alive for about three days. Terrible. Paul was a Roman citizen with a flash of a sword. His life was over and he entered into eternity and he paid the ultimate price. But he lived his life with no reserve. And you see that. In our lives, when, we, when you see a willingness to serve, a heart to give financially of your means, you, you see this idea, I want to give everything to the Lord. And the way you do this is you begin each day just like, God, I give all of me to all of you. It's a pattern of always giving your life. That's exactly what we've been talking about in Romans 12, one and two. That's what you do. But second conviction that he has, this is not only do you live your life with no reserve, but you live your life with no retreat. Look at verse seven. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. The idea of fighting, that word agonizomai, I agonize, I'll put myself to it. I'm going to pay the price. Paul says, I've done it. I have fought the good fight. And it is is a fight. I mean, it is a constant struggle. You got your own fears, which are many. You got flesh, your sin, ignorance, laziness, problems, uh, more demands than you could ever possibly meet. You got pressures from all sorts of people. But you stay in the fight. I have fought the good fight. No retreat means also finishing the course. Do you see what he says there? I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. This is what God laid before me. Trusting in him and his spirit, I ran it to the best of my ability. There were obstacles. It was difficult. I have, but I want you to know, I finished the course and I have kept the faith. Like Jude 3 says, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I kept it. And you know how you keep the faith, don't you? You keep it by giving it away. I gave it fully. I gave all of my life and I gave all of the truth and that is how I lived. I have literally poured my life out. I have lived with no retreat. And when you live your life with no reserve and no retreat, you can live your life with then no regret. And in verse eight, Paul lays it out and says, you know what? For me, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, you see, his whole focus was Christ and being with Him and knowing that He was going to come. If you love Christ's first appearing, you develop a heart to love His second appearing, and that is why you long to see the Savior. And and notice, He can't wait to see the Lord, not because He was perfect or He was without sin, not because life was just cozy and easy down here, because it was actually very difficult and hard, and He faced depression, He had all sorts of issues, but He could not wait just as to be in the presence of the Lord to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And when we talk about crowns, crowns of life and righteousness and glory, those are the three that are mentioned in the New Testament, that's not just for pastors. Like, dude, they get all this cool stuff. No, really, that's for all believers. You love the Lord. You've got a glorious future. And when you know the glorious future and the unconditional love of Christ, man, it frees yourself to give yourself fully to him. And Paul simply could not wait. He was living his life with no regret. You know, the world, it emphasizes getting your positions and your accolades now, right? For the Christian. Man, we're, we're waiting for the future, man. It's nice down here at times. It's going to be glorious to where we're going. And if you want to see a guy with real regret, you, you would just kind of keep reading. In fact, you could look at him this Sunday, but verses 9 and 10. See that Demas, verse 10? For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, What happened to Demas, he was one of the co-laborers, man. He was a key guy. But the things of the world started wooing, wooing his heart, and the things of Christ grew strangely dim, and he forsook it all. But that's not free for us. And friends, if you're here today and you are off track, you are off mission, God is, through this text, calling you to himself, to call you to a life of complete dedication and worship to him. You see, what we need in Christianity today we don't need better programs. We need better pastors. Not better methods, better men. We need pastors who will preach the word and do so from a life of no, res- no reserve, no retreat, and no regret. I remember a story about William Borden. 1904, uh, he grew up in the wealthy borden Dairy family. His family had a ton of money. When he graduated from high school, his family gave him a trip to tour the world for a year. How's that for a graduation present? What did you get? I got a suitcase. He gets a trip around the world. I got a crazy burgundy suitcase. Like, what am I to do with that? Hard shell even. Come on, that's really old school. What did, so he gets this trip around the world. And so he takes a year to tour the world. And as he's doing, he becomes, he becomes significantly burdened for all the lost people that he's ceiling, seeing. And especially in the Near East and the Far East. People are just desperately lost. And especially when he saw all these Muslims in China. It's like, whoa, they're living life so apart from God. They don't know him. Well, he gets back from his year tour, and it's time for education. They send him off to Yale. He gets an excellent education at Yale, and then he goes off to Princeton Seminary. Cemetery (laughs) is what it could be now. (laughs) Omit that from... I don't want that going out on the CDs, okay, on the website. All right. Anyway... uh, but he goes to the seminar and he gets this education. And while he's there and he's like, I got to do something about the lost. He writes in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Well, after school, his family fully expected that he was going to take over the family business. I mean, they, the Borden, I mean, estate. You got all this dairy business, man. You can have the nicest of lives. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I believe God's called me to bring the gospel to the lost, especially in China. And that's what I believe I'm going to do. They tried to convince him out of it. He wouldn't do it. And he showed him he was serious. I mean, he already was extremely wealthy at this point. He took almost all of his money and he invested it in kingdom purposes, invested in missions. In fact, at age 23, he became a a trustee at the Moody Bible Institute. And he prepared to go to, to bring the gospel to the lost in China, and it was at this time, in the back of his Bible, he wrote, no retreat, next to no reserves. Then at age 26, it had come. He makes his way for China. As he is sailing to China, they make a stop in Cairo, Egypt. And it's while he's in Cairo, Egypt, that he contracts cerebral meningitis. And as he lay there dying, never even making it to China, he wrote, no regret. after his death, someone was looking through his Bible. And they came to that back page where it says, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. In Egypt today, in a back alley, apparently it's like strewn with a bunch of garbage, there's an abandoned cemetery. And in that cemetery, there is the tombstone of William Borden, 1887 through 1913. And the final part of that inscription says this, quote, apart from faith in Christ, There is no explanation for such a life. So friends, specifically Matt, a pastor's charge is to preach the word from a life of no reserve, no retreat, and no regret. You stand at the pinnacle of about 2,000 years of history where God has commissioned men with a mantle of spiritual leadership and called them pastors you have a charge to keep. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. (laughs) Profound. We understand what you have called us to do, and God, by your grace, mercy, and your Spirit, would this be the reality? As Matt steps forth from here to Midlothian Bible Church, may all that you've called him to be fully brought about where you're bringing him to go. And Lord, for all of us, May we have these convictions shape our own. For someone who has come here today who's never trusted Christ and today sees him and his beauty, would they simply turn from their sin and pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and self-centeredness and my sin. I believe in Christ. I receive forgiveness because of his finished work on the cross. And Lord, for all of us, may we fully give our lives, pour out our lives to you as an act of worship. We ask this as we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.